0: Gabriel Byrne, yes, the Irish actor we all remember from the blockbuster hits Miller's Crossing and The Usual Suspects, but also a string of some 80 films as well as TV series and acclaimed Broadway performances. Add author to that resume. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Some celebrity memoirs are pretty good, but it's hard to find one that thrusts you into a story, the way it feels when you're sitting in a movie theater vicariously living through the actors on the screen. Gabriel Byrne offers that mirror in his memoir, Walking with Ghosts. In a lyrical narrative that is by turns uproariously funny and heartbreaking, he shares the story about growing up in Dublin, his sometimes trepidatious road to Hollywood, and reveals how inextricably bound his life as a famous actor is to the poignant echoes of his childhood. I spoke to Gabriel Byrne about his memoir, Walking with Ghosts. Well, I want to ask you about Walking with Ghosts. Uh, Yes. The book begins with your rumination on the seasons of your life, and you return Mm -hmm. to these spaces of your childhood home. You describe the place that birthed my love of simple things. And you give the example of the childhood thrill of finding a hawk feather snagged on a briar, or the taste of wild blackberries after rain. So I was thinking about how the landscape of memoir today is so vast and varied, but your book really comes through as giving space to really tender and simple things. But then we find as we're immersed in those very poignant parts of your story, you do have to negotiate extreme and traumatic situations too, like for example, the death of your friend, Jimmy. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about how the book is about returning to those spaces physically or emotionally and you have to walk with these ghosts that are both benevolent and then not so. So I wondered if in your writing process, if in penning the more dramatic more traumatic situations and more dramatic ones, could that potentially have mitigated the depiction of the simpler things that you were trying to describe as if the writing the trauma clouded the rest and how you grappled with that in your writing process?
1: Well, that's a very interesting and, and complex uh, question. And I will, I will try to answer it um, if, I, if I can. Um, I think that me- memory itself is uh, a very fragmented thing. It doesn't have, it doesn't have a linear uh, character you don't necessarily remember things chronologically and we we, we tend to remember things often in images and those images contain um oftentimes emotions and um when I set out to uh, to write the book, the, the reason I began it um, on that hill, which was very important to me when I was growing up, was that it allowed me a panorama um, of the physical landscape. And it also allowed me a panorama of my, my life. And in the physical landscape um, we. we we, we tend to remember the physical landscape of our of our childhood uh, in an unchanging way. Uh, when we think back to when we were seven and eight um, and we haven't visited that place for a long time, we tend to think of it as being the same. But what I found in that experience was that nothing really belongs to us except memory. Even landscape that we think... Um, is ours in, in, in our own uh, possessive way. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I looked out over that hill and I saw that the farms that I had grown up with as a child had been replaced by apartment blocks, I resented it because I thought, how can they interfere with my memory of what happened there? How can they, how can they desecrate that landscape by putting in blocks of apartment? So when I continued on that road in, in that initial memory and I came to the house that I used to live in and um, I stood outside it. And as I was standing outside, uh, the front door opened and a man came out with his wife and his baby. And he asked me in a very suspicious way what I was doing there. And I said, oh, I used to live here. This, this was my home. And he didn't give any kind of response to that. Um, I di- I hadn't convinced him that I had a reason to be standing there. And when the door opened just a crack, I was able to see into the hallway. And of course the hallway was not the hallway of my childhood. And they put on an extension at the back and that was no longer the kitchen that eight of us used to eat our, our meals in. And I realized also that if landscape doesn't belong to us, neither does home, because home is something that um, you carry with you. Um, even if you stay in the same place, your idea of home, um, your idea of home changes. So, what what I was trying to do was to look back over those. Uh, things that really meant things to me, like landscape, home, and reduced them to their simplicities, real simplicity, not, not sentimental or nostalgic or funny or anything like that, just um, simple and real. And so when it came to the traumatic things that you uh, describe, and every one of us, I think, goes through, the journey from the time when life looks full of exciting possibilities and uh, we, we, are, um, we can't wait to drink life in um, and uh, when it came to write about those things i decided to use exactly the same tactic i, I, I wanted to put down the traumatic things in a simple way, so that people who had experienced similar uh, things to me could invest that simplicity with their own experience. And at the same time, people who hadn't experienced could also use their imagination without me putting too much in the way. So I tended to rely on images rather than big, long descriptions of what those traumatic events uh, might seem like, that's a long-winded answer to your question about, but I hope that something, <laughs> something oh, no. in there is
0: And it yeah. makes it makes perfect sense to me, but something that you said reminded me of something that you wrote about in Pictures in My Mind which was your first mm. book, mm-hmm. the, the Welsh word hiraeth, yeah. so there's mm-hmm. really no easy translation in English, but it means something mm. Approximately like a profound longing for home. So in that mm-hmm. first book, you you mention Richard Burton, and you you talk mm-hmm. about him in the in uh, Walking with Ghosts as well. Mm-hmm. But he was talking about this word and this homesickness that you never get over, and this pain of exile. And he said, mm-hmm. it's like tearing bits of your skin off every time you leave. Mm-hmm. So it, it would be difficult to choose just one part of the book where this wouldn't be evident because there is a there is this longing. There is this looking back, maybe not with a sense of nostalgia, but maybe only just looking at what was lost and even in a, in a way that is accepting. So when you do return years later um, to the house, this area that you knew so well, you, you said in that very section that you just described that you stood there as an intruder in your own past. I was an intruder yeah. in my own past. I mm-hmm. felt like this is something of that nebulous sense of this Welsh word um, that, I, that I just felt like as I'm as I'm moving through the book, um, I just kept thinking about the first book and, and that word. It also put me in the mind of, Are you familiar with the word malkosh? No. So this is a Hebrew word I was first introduced to when I read an article by somebody named Ruth Margolit in the New Yorker. Mm -hmm. It's one of those words too that doesn't have an easy translation, but it gets to this idea of last rains. The last rains in a really arid place that you didn't know would be the last rains of the season. Mhm so, by extension, it means not just last rain but last anything that you didn't know mm-hmm. was the the last time you would encounter that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I thought about that term a lot when I was reading your book. When was the last time you didn't know was the last time for something? Childhood is just full of those moments, and I kept underlining the spaces in your book, for example the um the Guinness Bicentennial. Mm-hmm. And this idea of, I can't wait to come back next year. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's a bicentennial, so there wouldn't be mm-hmm. a, big, a big celebration the following year. Mm-hmm. And you remarked in an interview that I, that I saw um, about these markers, these moments, like, for example, when your daughter told you that she didn't need her car seat anymore. Yes. And when was the last time that you didn't know was the last time? But I think you, I think the book is so infused with those moments, and that also colors this world for us. And I think it's something that makes the book so resonant for readers as well.
1: Well, I, I yes, um, you know, once more, you've said a lot in in that question which isn't really a question. It's more observations. Um, and when is the last time you realize that it was the last time? Well, there will come a time when it will be the last time for everything. And I think that when, um, when, we, when we talk about um, the, um, the past, we're often talking about what cannot be retrieved. And Louise Gluck, the the, the American poet who won the um, Nobel Prize this year, she talked about that we experience everything once, and that's in childhood, and the rest of it is memory. And there's great wisdom in that because... um, our, our souls, our minds, our spirits are alive when we're children. We absorb everything, and then we come to a time when we don't observe or absorb in that way anymore. And we look back, and w- what are we looking back at? We're, lo- we're looking back at ourselves and that part of ourselves that can never, that can never come back again. Um, you know, that particular chapter that you're talking about when um, it was one of the most exciting days in my life, I think it was nine when we went to that fair. And um, when we were coming back, my brother said, oh, I can't wait to go to the next one. And yes, it was a bicentennial. So there was not going to be a next one. And my father said, we're all going to be dead and buried by that time. And what that even at that age, just on the edge of my consciousness, I understood that time was finite and that uh, there would be a time when I wouldn't be alive. And children experience those things. A, a young child would sometimes say to its parents, are you going to die Daddy, are you going to die, mommy? They become aware of it. We can't articulate it and, you, you know, d- d- discuss it, but it's there. So when I was looking at those um, major markers, as you call them in life, some of them are very obvious, but some of them are not. And we don't realize what markers they were until we have got many, many years past them. You can open a door, you can walk up a staircase and open a door, a seemingly, uh, you know, inconsequential, random act, and it can change your entire life. Had you not got off the bus at that moment, had you said to a friend, okay, I'll see you on Saturday instead of Friday, your life might have been different. So the little moments that determine huge uh, the huge access of our lives are sometimes unseen and unremarkable. Of course, sometimes they are very, very obvious. But they were the things that I wanted to uh, that I wanted to trace. And um, I think it's it's a great phrase. When is the last time you knew the last time? Well, I, I find that in relation to you know what we're going through at the moment, in a way, COVID. I remember sitting in a cafe with friends of mine and saying, "Okay, well, listen, um, I'll see you in a couple of months, okay? And we'll go down to that village down in, you know, County Kerry, and we'll, you know, well, that was the last time. The world changed after that, uh, after that conversation, and it was the last time I saw those people. Now I don't know when the next time I will see them is. I hope not too long." But it ties into this idea that we must really cherish every moment of observation and every kind of quiet instinct that we have, especially in relation to the people in our lives that we care about, that we love, but also people that we may not put into that primary category because sometimes it happens that somebody you don't think that much about passes away and you think Jesus I wish I had gotten to know that person a bit better. Hmm. I had this instinct that I should have but I didn't. I didn't know that the last time that I saw him
0: Hmm.
1: I didn't know that the last time I saw him was going to be it. So um, you know um, these all sound like very profound and philosophical questions but i think everybody recognizes those steps along the line in life and how we walk with ghosts and the ghosts can be the ghosts of memory they can be the ghosts of the people that we've known they can be the ghosts of regret or or or, or trauma and that um we will one day be ghosts walking behind the people that we care about. And so that's why it felt like a good title to me, because uh, even though a ghost doesn't have a a, um, um, a body per se, it's still there in spirit and it's walking with you. It's an active an active thing and I do believe I remember once walking with my father and we looked along this empty road and I said there's nobody out today and he said no 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 he said the roads are full of ghosts if you could see them and uh, the Indian people also believe that the Native American Indians also believe that that the spirits of your ancestors walk walk with you uh, when you walk not just walking but in in your life and we tend to not respect too much the idea of the people who have gone before us. But the people who have gone before us are the people who are responsible for us being here now.
0: There's a, an element in your in the Dublin setting that persists here for me in that it strikes me in your recollection as a sort of an idyllic place and there's a timelessness to it as well even when it's gritty and realistic um, it was not a life of ease for anyone in your world at that time but it seems to me like part of the longing that you express is even for some of those natural elements that and maybe even in the way that modernity was just beginning to really emerge and it made me wonder if perhaps that's why your senses were so alive. It's just it's because of that specific era that you were in. It was like the natural world was out there beyond the back door, um, and you seemed like you were a very watchful young boy. But I'm I'm just mm. wondering if. If it had also to do with the place that there was that there's now this imprint that we see in the way that you share your memories and experiences because of that place because of that time and that that timelessness and and that place I I experience that sometimes when I read Edna O'Brien or. Mm. Um, or William Trevor. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if it was—is—is it—is it a Dublin thing? I've never been there myself. Or is it? Does it have mm. to do with that time period? I'm not sure. There are just things that are not occluding the way that you, that you can perceive something very purely.
1: Um. Yes. I think there's something about the I. I, I think there's something about the Irish way of relating to the world that possibly has something to do with our history. Um, I don't know. We, we, we certainly have um, more than quite a few other people in the world. We have a capacity to relate to the world in terms of stories. I don't know that it's necessarily an Irish thing, but um, it's a very literary uh, culture. It's also an imaginative culture. And I say this, uh, you know, not that everybody and everything there is like that. It's not. But we were, uh, for many hundreds of years, denied access to books, education, education, and so forth and and culture and imagination went underground and it came out in the form of stories, um, things that we imagined. Uh, it gave birth to poetry and it gave birth to a real love of the landscape. Um I think Edna O'Brien's work is suffused with that. Uh, William Trevor's work, on the other hand, who you mentioned, who's possibly one of the great short story writers of the 20th century. um, His work concentrates a great deal, as you rightly say, on that world, changing world between modernity and traditional. And... Um, It's something I'm very conscious of But it's not just an Irish thing I, I, I bet that people in Texas Will look at the world That they're living in now And say to themselves What have we gained with these new days That we live in But also what have we lost And I think that technology Of course Reaches everywhere now What we've lost I think is um the, the wonder and the joy of storytelling, not so much in the big, grand way, but in the storytelling of day-to-day life, the communication of one with the other, um, the, the, the fracturing of, of communities so that individuals um, don't have the same recognition in the community that they used to have. People are now isolated in their houses with computers and living in a virtual world. That's inevitable that that has taken place. But, for example, when I was growing up, the radio was switched on two or three times a day for the news or for the weather forecast, and then it was switched off. And the rest of the time, people were talking to each other. And now you have 500 channels that you can choose from. I know from my own experience that 500 channels, even five channels, induces in me a sort of a discontent and a restlessness that I think, oh, geez, maybe there's something better on channel 25, or oh, I shouldn't have moved from channel 325 because, Mm -hmm. oh, there's that movie that's been on that I wanted to see, all that stuff. And then you've got the internet, and then you've got. People's inability to retain attention spans for a long periods of time. It's not just children who have ADD. It's adults. If you go to a place like Los Angeles, and I'm not blackballing Los Angeles by any means, but one of the things that I find really difficult there is trying to have a conversation with people who live there. You know, you'll meet somebody and, and you'll say, how's it going? And they'll say, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't say good because, you know, the thing is that, oh, my God, have you seen that guy on TV, the guy who does all the cooking shows? <laughs> you know, we got this, we, we got this cooker last week and it's, and it's pretty amazing because he used to go and and, and suddenly you're thinking, stop, <laughs> you're doing the equivalent of 500 television channels. Let's have this conversation and let's develop it and and let's luxuriate in each other's communication. Um, I find that difficult because I like, uh, though you wouldn't think it now with this, but I like to listen to what people have to say. Mm -hmm. I really do. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was growing up, sitting around the fire, listening to people talking about ghosts and You know, giants and things That they kind of believed in themselves And in some cases actually really did believe in Mm -hmm. But you have an organization Which I think began in Texas I could be wrong Uh, So forgive me if it's not But it's an organization called The Moth Have you heard of that?
0: Yes, I have
1: Did that begin in Texas?
0: Um, I don't think it began in Texas Um, But it's the storytelling Yes. Show. Yes. And he
1: he he got the idea from sitting with his grandmother, and uh, on the porch. And at night, and the moths would come in, and um, you know they would kind of get trapped on the on, on the uh, the wire or the gauze, or whatever it was that surrounded the porch, and it gave birth to this guy. It gave birth in his in his imagination to this idea that maybe he wasn't the only one who missed stories. Mm. And so he founded this little group, and it's now become so incredibly popular. Um, And what that points up is people's need for stories people need to communicate their own stories. You don't have to read William Trevor or, you know, um, um, any writer you can think of. We all have our own incredibly extraordinary stories of uncles and aunts and grandfathers and guys who live down the road. We all have the universe of stories within our grasp. And um, that's what that, organization Mm -hmm. uh, tapped into, and it's now worldwide. Mm -hmm.
0: I was thinking about when you were talking about um, how you were deprived, how the Irish were deprived of books and and education and so forth, Mm -hmm. um, that in the book, what really comes through is the way that you're influenced by your mother and her love of reading, and then also Mm -hmm. Mrs. Gordon, who Mm -hmm opened up these worlds for you. She read newspaper stories to you about mm. like the dog and I mean also mm. sordid tales about murders. and she referred to mm. ghosts as mm. very unhappy souls that mm-hmm. left the world too soon. It seemed as I was reading about your mom and Mrs. Gordon, that you had and you were you you had to have been a great listener, an observant yeah. young boy and a great listener. It seems like, you had this other kind of education that influences you still, I, I think. And d- it opened your mind at first and expanded your horizons about all of the things that happened outside of your childhood home and also out of time. And my sense was that this curiosity and this looking out into the wider world just has never left you. And um, in following your career, uh i can see how mrs gordon's influence has been so long lasting and of course your mother's passion for for reading um so th- that that was just something that um that i thought about quite a lot so when you mentioned the idea of these channels and the the diminished attention span um yeah there was there was no time for any of that for as much as you loved going to the movies with your Mm. grandmother and that was just another portal into storytelling Um, of course a very different one than 500 channels right
1: of course
0: so I i just um love in the book these influences of and they all happen to be women in this case of these women but also the commie uh, your your, oh, yeah. your school your school child mm-hmm. had had mm-hmm. that influence on you too to be mm-hmm. questioning and to be curious mm-hmm. about the world
1: mm-hmm. so, uh, uh, absolutely
0: I really appreciate that, that
1: yeah that is um if we're lucky enough um to have people around us who can imbue us with a sense of curiosity and wonder about the world. Um, you're, you're, you're given a great gift, and it's as parents, we have, you know, we have. Even if you, if you don't have children, and, and if you, you know, come across young kids, you can never overestimate um, a word of encouragement or a story. Told to a young person, or a word of wisdom that you you know that you drop to them, because as we were saying, children are their imaginations are alive, waiting for um, waiting for guidance, really. And um, I think one of the greatest gifts that you can give a child is um, is your attention is to listen to them and develop the conversation that you're having, uh you, you know, with them and go with their... Because they have fantastic imaginations. Children have incredible imaginations. And you talk about the last time of it. You know, when is the last time we stopped living as children? I don't mean when we became 14 and 15 and went into puberty. and so, But when do we stop thinking like that? Mm-hmm. Somebody... Somebody asked Picasso when he was 90, did he have any ambitions left? And he said, um, my my, my great ambition throughout my life, and still is, is to to paint like a child. Mm. And that's a remarkable thing, to see the world through the eyes of a child. Um, it's even in the Bible not that I'm religious or anything but it's in the Bible uh, unless you see as as little children do you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven really what that's saying is if you can see the world through the eyes of a child you'll be given great gifts mm-hmm. and um, it requires a certain kind of discipline I think or willingness to let go our adult judgment and just to say what's this thing even if it's a twig that you find by the roadside and you pick it up and you look at it, because as Blake said, you know, the universe is in a grain of sand Um, there's no such thing as ordinary, everything everything is extraordinary everything, and um, there's a quotation also from Isaac Newton, uh, if I can remember it, which says kind of the same thing Um, and, and there I was um upon the seashore seeking a more perfect pebble when all around me the great ocean of truth lay undiscovered
0: that's so beautiful
1: mm.
0: this idea of the the child's mind and creativity and imagination makes me think about the nativity play that you wrote about yes <laughs> So I know Brian wrote about a nativity play too in Country Girl in her memoir, and that became Mm -hmm. the seedbed for the doll, but it was a fiasco. That's her word. Would you describe Mm -hmm. in your memoir about the nativity play where you were a shepherd? I don't think it was a fiasco so much as that creativity that you're talking about, that sense of wonder, and the way that your peers all sort of rallied around this cause to have this great show i mean as as uproariously funny as that story is and it's very very funny Mm -hmm. um i do see that in that in many many anecdotes in this book but that one comes to mind there it wasn't it wasn't a fiasco it was just this earnestness uh, even in, even with the nuns who were going mm-hmm. along with, you know, the glued-on beard and the um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the rest. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I just love And that's such a funny uh, moment in the book. Um, and I think that that child's curiosity is what opens the door to those moments of, of, of humor and that lack of guile. Mm-hmm. That total lack of guile and that lack of self-consciousness that just would make something like that nativity play happen in the first place.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, really we hadn't a clue what we were doing. And looking back on it, you know, I was supposed to be sitting, uh, I was just supposed to be a shepherd waiting for uh, the three wise men to arrive. hmm <laughs> And um, I was sitting on, a, on a, an apple box that was covered in silver. And uh, somebody else was making sheep sounds um, to, because the audience was supposed to think there was sheep where I was looking. But um, the nun was quite clever in the way that she did it because uh, when, when the three wise men came, uh, to the manger, to the with the birthplace of Jesus, um, they said, oh, we came from the East and a star guided us. And um, there was, um, we came with 40 camels. And, uh, you know, obviously you couldn't get 40 camels onto the stage. You couldn't even get 40 camels, uh, you know, if you were doing a $100 million film. But she was clever enough in that she said, um, Oh, no, no, they'd never fit into the manger. We had to leave them outside. <laughs> That's actually a pretty clever way of dealing with uh, 40 camels, not being there at all. So, um, but she was very conscious that we didn't betray our class roots either by. Uh, speaking in, uh, you know, common Dublin accents. We had to kind of use posh, mm-hmm. posh accents to show that we were kind of not, um, you know, that we weren't actually riffraff.
0: <laughs> well, it's a, a very, very sweet uh, anecdote in the book. Your uh, Your chapter about Broadway near the end of the book brings us to some points that reveal a lot about the way that we all arrive at judgments about the past when we are Mm. older. And maybe this begins when we're middle-aged and beyond, but I believe that the sense of it is more pronounced and clearer to us, like we're more aware of it with each passing year. So when you ask in the book, why did I choose this life? This is much later in the memoir. We sort of go through this little flip book of images and rewind the tape, or um, you know, press the button that makes the movie montage sort of move in in reverse and back again. Seems like a little bit of a of a magic trick in in your book. While my my um, my copy of the book is it's underlined and highlighted almost beyond recognition. Uh, this part somehow is where my my pencil lines are very fine and very clear and defined because i felt like like there's there's no narrative arc here i like the recursive structure of your memoir very much i think mm-hmm. it, i think it's it's perfect um but there's this point where we're coming to some answers and i i envy those readers who have yet to read your book because they still have the experience of reading it for the first time before them. But you begin in the first person in that chapter and then there's this shift where you start to directly address your father and then Mm -hmm. your mother. And that's not just poetic license either. It was so seamless. I had to double back and look at it again. And I don't know. I, it just made me think about how that sort of mimics the way, speaking of recursive, the way that we think. If there's such a realness. That's how we really ruminate with mm-hmm. these, these shifts mm-hmm. in point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes perfect sense to us. So mm. there was just something about that part that I, I wanted to, to share with you.
1: Yeah, I think that, again, it it goes back to the title. I mean, our parents, um, especially, um, whether we've had a good experience with them or not, they walk with us um, and they become, as I said in the book, I, I, um, I listened to my father for years, but I never really heard what he was saying until I was much later until I was much older. And um, don't we address our parents in our heads, um, whether we actually use the interrogative form or not, but we're constantly thinking of, my mother said that one day, or my father did that. You know, that question, why did I choose this life, is 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 a deep question because how much of your life do you actually choose once you're born to 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 two people? You've no control of you 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 just come into the world, but you come into the world to these two people, um, and you live with them. If if you're lucky, you 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 know you um you get to share quite a lot of time with them unless something awful happens, um. The idea of having a, um, a conversation with your father or your mother who have passed was an interesting exercise for me because it implied that they were still there and I could um, interrogate them and I could be real with them and I could be honest with them in a way that I never could be in, in life you know, I could never say to my mother, for example, I think you had a disappointed life. I could never say that. But I can say it to her now in the context of these pages. I can never say to my father, I didn't know you were ashamed of, uh, you know, being thrown on the scrap heap at 47 and never worked again. I didn't know what that did to you. Um. I know, of course, now what it did to him. But in the unthinkingness of youth and, you know, it, I suppose the selfishness of living your life at that time, you don't think about it. But my father was an old man at, four, at 47. And my mother and father, both. you talked earlier on about modernity and so forth. They came from a traditional world and they were trying to grapple with the, the, the new world. So if you were born in, as my father was born in 1916 or something, and this is true of anybody who was born around that time, look what they went through. They went through the First World War. They went through the Spanish flu, which killed millions and millions. They went through the Depression in the 30s. Before they had gotten their heads up above that, there was the Second World War. They got a few years of uh, respite. Then there was the Korean War. And then there's the Vietnam War, uh, the Second World War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War. And then just as you were getting your head around that, nuclear war raised its head. And as well as that, morality changed gigantically. So you were just getting used to the idea of traditionalizing our America, and suddenly girls were saying, I'm on the pill. That means I can have sex with whoever I want, whenever I want. And those parents were looking at those children and saying... They're on the pill and they're taking drugs. What world are we living in? Um, and so we tend to think that that generation didn't experience anything but they were also trapped in traditional roles, even as the world around them was changing hugely and they held on to their they held on to their traditional beliefs and their traditional um, you know idea of heaven and Uh, hell and earth and so forth so I I understand now much more the conflict of the world that they lived in both as individuals um, trying to negotiate life and the bigger world that was happening outside them because we tend to think that our journey through life is just our own journey but so much of what we go through on a daily basis is determined by forces beyond us you know um, so economics um, politics um, you, you know so many things that the, 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 that we tend to think are outsiders that are actually controlling our daily lives. Look at the last four years for example Oops,
0: you mentioned your your father was redundant at age forty seven.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: that can be the fate of some actors in in Hollywood, um, but you mm-hmm. continue to be a working actor and director, and it mm-hmm. seems that we can almost always still see you in movies all the time, including in mm-hmm. recent years. I've I've watched things like No Pay Nudity, mm-hmm. uh, Carrie Pilby, Iana, Louder Than Bombs, Lost Girls. Uh, to say nothing of like the TV series that you're you're still doing. Um, you are still as prolific an actor if not more so and it defi- it defies really what we think about Hollywood and the dearth of roles for um, mm-hmm. for actors that have and already enjoyed a, a heyday in earlier decades.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think it's tougher much, much tougher for women as it is in so many areas of life. Um, Hollywood doesn't write movies for women over the age of 35. Um, It doesn't write roles for married women or women with children. It doesn't... um, It still doesn't address... You know, women make up 50% of the population and yet the amount of movies about women... And I don't just mean like an occasional movie where uh, some girl is a superhero or, you know, they're, they're basically playing roles that men play. I'm talking about really informed roles that allow women to be on the screen uh, with the same complexity as, um, as men. But then again, movies, most movies, in my opinion, don't have great complexity to them um they're pretty straightforward there's there's heroes there's villains and there's a resolution at the end um in my in my world I never wanted to become part of Hollywood I didn't like it uh when I was there I didn't like the kind of um things that I was offered and I always stayed off that kind of um spectrum I always wanted to just do the things that I liked doing, whether they were popular or not. I mean, you mentioned, like, um, you mentioned some movies there. But if you look at what those movies are about, they're really about something. Mm-hmm. Now, um, um, uh, no pay nudity. Um, I think you must have been the only other person that saw that film. Oh, it's but, a great movie. <laughs> it's a great movie. Um, but but it's about it's about failure. That's a film about failure. So many movies are about success but to make a movie about failure which is part of our existence seemed to me to be a worthwhile thing to do a movie about Lost Girls which is about a marginalised group of people in our society in this case prostitutes who were murdered and nobody cared about them based on a true case that seemed to me to be something uh, you know worth doing uh, um you know, in treatment, which I did for HBO, which was about a therapist and all of the cases that we examined in that were all, you know, stories that affect every single person in life. Mm-hmm. I'm not really big on action films and I'm not big on rom-coms or um, I'm not big on gross out comedies or those things. I, I I just prefer to do the things quietly that I want to do mm-hmm. and it never bothers me whether they're seen, whether they get to the box office or or not. It does, it doesn't bother me hugely, but enough people see them to say, "Oh, I'm glad I saw that film."
0: Oh, they're they're all wonderful. They're all wonderful. Well, speaking of failure, this the subject of failure. I'm going to evoke Frank O'Connor here. Mm -hmm. In uh, The Lonely Voice, he discusses Mm -hmm. submerged populations, the marginalized, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the ways in which every story is really about loss. All All our conflicts are wrapped up in loss in some way, and we confront that loss and learn from it and change as a consequence. So there were so very many of these moments in your childhood, major losses, small moments of loss and trauma, too just slights, right? Um, But it seems to me that your book is showing us the way in which life is a series of losses, sure, and that as we grow up, life really doesn't get easier. We continue, even in older age, maybe especially then, to confront loss, to have to adapt to it, to be changed by it that the idea of, it's not, one of the things I appreciate about the book so much is, personally, I don't think about closure. I I find the idea of something coming full circle or of closure to be really problematic for me. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I would much rather think about the idea of adapting. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to say accepting, but looking, mm. looking at the loss and knowing that you're, that you're changed by it and living in that real space. And I feel mm. like that's one of the things that, that the book really helps me understand.
1: Mm. That's great. Well, you just hit on something there. We all lose everything. Everything. That's ultimately our fate, is to lose everything. But while we're here, we must live um, to the fullest of our ability. I think a great deal of unhappiness and discontent comes from expectation of life to be something that we don't... um, You know, I expect this to happen. So when it doesn't happen, we're unhappy because it doesn't happen. Um, Desire and expectation are natural... Um, motivators but things do not turn out always as we want them to turn out or we expect them to turn out often it's the unexpected that comes into our lives that um, you you know that's the reality good and bad so um, if we can accept the fact that as George Harrison said all things must pass uh, if we're going to establish within ourselves the fact that we lose everything it might give more significance and meaning to what we do have
0: Gabriel Byrne thank you so much for talking to me today I really appreciate it
1: yeah, it was lovely Yvette, thank you so much and thanks for reading the book and thanks for um, giving it time and, and focus and, and respect thank you
0: Gabriel Byrne is the author of the memoir Walking with Ghosts this has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Thanks for listening. Write to us at bookpublic at TPR.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. We also had help this week from Kathleen Creeden. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Eva Benavides.